Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. I'm Andy Alabastro, Director of Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Restoring America as the Land of the Free. We welcome those joining us from Resource Bank, the network of our closest friends, allies, and conservative leaders. We're used to convening in person this time of year, but we're pleased to offer these discussions and our expert analysis through the virtual platform. We're also pleased to welcome members of the public. Our public programs team has a full suite of robust programming, and you can always find that at heritage.org events. This session is being recorded. It will be posted on resourcebank.org within the next 24 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode, but we want your questions and we encourage you to submit them through the questions tab and the questions box on the right-hand side of your screen. We encourage you to identify yourself and your organization so we can say hello when we bring your question to our guests. Now we're pleased to have with us some special guests today, the Honorable Karen Fan, Clint Woods, Nick Loris, and our moderator, Tim Desher. And as I offer brief introductions, I invite our guests to turn on their cameras. The Honorable Karen Fan is president of the Arizona State Senate. She is the second female Senate president in the history of Arizona. Senator Fan currently serves as vice chair of both the Finance Committee and the Transportation and Technology Committee, and as a member of the Natural Resources, Energy, and Water Committee. Senator Fan was first elected in November 2016 and previously serving from 2011 to 2016 as a state representative. Senator Fan is also the owner and CEO of a highway construction company specializing in the installation of guardrail and signs throughout the state of Arizona. Congratulations on that company recently celebrating its 35th business anniversary. Clint Woods is the policy fellow for regulations at Americans for Prosperity. Clint previously served as the deputy assistant administrator for air and radiation at the United States Environmental Protection Agency, as the executive director for the Association of Air Pollution Control Agencies and in senior positions with the U.S. House Science Committee, American Legislative Exchange Council, and the Recreation Vehicle Industry Association. Nick Loris is the Deputy Director of Heritage's Thomas Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Nick is an economist, and as Heritage's Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow, he focuses on energy, environmental, and regulatory issues. He is a prolific contributor to the Daily Signal, which is Heritage's multimedia news organization, and Nick is the lead author on the study that forms the framework for today's conversation. Moderating today's conversation is Tim Desher, Associate Director of Coalition Relations at Heritage. Tim has a deep background across policy issues, economic and regulatory, and he's built that here at Heritage, in governor's offices, on presidential campaigns, and in the White House. Many of you will recognize his name and his voice as he is the co-host of our popular Heritage Explains podcast. We're pleased to have all of you with us today, and I now turn the conversation over. Well, Andy, thank you so much. Um, so everybody, uh, again, thank you so much for tuning in. It, it means the world on a Friday. The, the idea for this event started after a podcast that Nick Loris and I did a few weeks ago. 
Uh, Andy came to me and said, hey, we got to do this as an event. It was really good. And so when the boss says move, you move. So Nick has done a great job compiling this report called Restoring America as the Land of the Free. And that goes through ways of improving our score in the index of economic freedom. And so anybody who doesn't know what the index is, that's a way that Heritage measures how all countries around the world are doing in terms of their economic freedom. And they have various different ways of scoring. Um, but, but really what this report does is it plays off of the scores um, the U.S. received and it, it prescribes ways that we can move toward greater freedom. So Nick, I'm gonna just kick it off to you really quick. Can you just give us just a little bit more of the genesis of this report and putting it together? Yeah, sure, and thank you all for being here. The, the genesis of this report really stems from marrying two concepts that Heritage has done for a very long time. The first being our index of economic freedom which we've compiled for more than 25 years now that objectively measures uh, a country's uh, freedom score based on a, a wide range of different factors, whether that's government spending or business investment or trade freedom, private property rights, all of the hallmarks that we know present strong linkages to higher levels of prosperity. Uh, the second concept for this report is providing policy recommendations for members of Congress, for state legislators, so we can improve our score. Uh, a lot of what Heritage has done through its issue briefs and its backgrounders is to provide recommendations for Congress uh, on a wide range of public policy issues. And so I've always been amazed when the Heritage releases uh, our index of economic freedom and it's just flooded with international reporters, um, folks from embassies, uh, we had calls from around the world saying, how can we improve our score? Uh, they, they measure themselves next to their neighbors. Uh, they, they see it as a, a benchmark achievement when they move up uh, in the rankings. And the, the genesis for this report is, how can we create that same sense of pride and urgency uh, for US policymakers to adopt the right policy reforms that not only improve the US score, but also give people a better standard of living for all Americans. Yeah, Nick, like everything, there are things that we do well, um, and then there are things that we really need to improve on. Can you briefly just give us some 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 of the good and the bad news? <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably no surprise that the worst uh, score that we have is our government spending and fiscal health. Uh, you know, being uh, so far in debt, it has just tanked the score in a way that has taken us from the free category to mostly free. And so if you back up a little bit in, in 2006, we were in the free category, which is any score above an 80, we continually slid down um, into the mostly free category in 2010 and then just kind of continued to downslide. And so this policy uh, prescription for uh, fiscal health and government spending is, is critical to uh, boosting the score by trying to implement spending caps, trying to get our fiscal house in order. Uh, but, but then there's also you know, marginal improvements that we can make in areas that we uh, do historically well on. We have historically strong private property rights 
in the United States, uh, but we don't adequately compensate private property owners for regulatory takings. We have a number of regulations uh, that can uh, potentially seize activity on private property. And, and so whether we're doing well uh, in certain categories versus others, I think what's special about this report is there's still a laundry list of improvements to make uh, for all of these categories. Yeah, Senator Fan. First of all, it's, it's such an honor to have you here. I know all the hard work that you do in the state of Arizona to make it a, a freer, more prosperous place to live. Um, there's a nat natural tension between private and public sector, as we know. Um, so as the president of the Arizona State Senate and also a, a business owner, can you just talk just a little bit about fighting that natural tension and the potential that states have to increase our economic freedom through doing that. Great, thank you. Um, one of the stories that we know here in Arizona is when I started my business 35 years ago, I started with $500 out of my house. Um, we are now the largest guardrail company in the state of Arizona. And one of the reasons why we were successful is because the, the lack of regulation or reduced regulation, if you will, and overburdening government interference 35 years ago. We have seen that eroded over the last three decades. If I were to try and start my business now, I could not do it. But I can tell you, we have an amazing governor who has just started his second term in his second term. We have a very fiscally conservative leg legislative body, and we are turning that back around in Arizona. Arizona is one of the leading states in the nation for fiscal responsibility, great business opportunities, and low taxes. We are constantly being uh, held up by ALEC and the Cato Institute, as well as the Heritage Foundation, about the great policies that we are doing here in Arizona. Last year, in simplifying our tax code, we cut personal income taxes by reducing the number of total brackets from five to four and we cut those tax rates for nearly every person in those brackets. Arizona saved income earners about $680 million in fiscal year 2020. That tax liability was compared to the federal conformity baseline. We are one of the fastest growing states because of our pro-business policies. We have many, many California companies moving here to get away from that over-regulation over taxation, companies like Intel, Amazon, national companies like uh, insurance, national insurance company, they are all coming to Arizona. Yeah, there's, it's truly incredible when you see, especially if you look at um, one of the rankings, the ALEC uh, Rich States, Poor States, Arizona has consistently risen in that, and it's because of work like that that you're doing, applying uh, some of these prescriptions that we have in the report. Now, one of those things is regulatory reform, and I'm going to move to Clint um, because he has done a lot of work on that. Um, he's been at all different levels uh, of the government um, process, um, and there's been some recent developments in regulatory reform through the Trump administration. And you know, we know that the administration's efforts have driven a lot of meaningful economic growth recently. So in the wake of COVID, we have seen some movement, additional movement in regulatory reform. What could this mean for our recovery, Clint? Well, Tim, thanks so much for having me and, and, and let me commend Heritage and, and Nick for this report. 
I think uh, folks, I think, are well aware of the value of the Index of Economic Freedom. Um, and, you know, like any good report card, it, it helps to lead the way uh, to reforms that are necessary. Um, and I think really, really uh, hones in on some of those key public policy topics. I, I have had the privilege of, of serving as uh, a regulator and, and representing regulators at, at state and federal level of government. And, and I think there are some exciting things happening. I think uh, COVID-19 represents a, a really unique inflection point uh, for, for the state of regulatory reform for Americans for Prosperity, uh, which is a, a grassroots organization uh, with more than 3 million activists around the country uh, working across our 35 state chapters uh, to really effectuate change at the state and federal level. Um, and, and we see a lot of interaction between, between those, uh, th those efforts. So in the same ways that our, our very broad uh, federal regulations like the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act are ultimately implemented at the state level, uh, we also are seeing right now uh, ill-advised uh, arguments for bailouts of state and local governments that have, have recklessly spent for decades. Um, and we strongly believe that those things should be, those bailouts should be rejected. I think similarly, we've seen some really creative solutions in places like Arizona that need to be tiered up at the federal level. Um, I, I think as we've, we've looked at COVID-19, it's, it's revealed a few things about our regulatory system and, and really highlighted some opportunities and challenges. I think one is, is that, you know, in many states, we're seeing uh, a very expansive view of executive authority in the form of lockdown orders and other actions that uh, really reveal just how powerful our state and federal government can be um, in a state of emergency. I also think it is revealed, and as our colleagues at, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute has put it, um, that many of our regulations are not only getting in the way of, of, of a response to COVID-19, uh, but also may have been uh, never needed in the first place. Um, and I think folks are, are beginning to see the ways that, that accumulated red tape holds us back in this country. I also think folks are, are, are rightfully uh, more skeptical than any time in my, in my lifetime, at least, about the role uh, and the ways in which government makes science-based decision-making um, and, and, and how they implement regulations uh, based upon um, significant uncertainty and consideration of risk. And I think folks are asking questions and looking for uh, ways to reduce red tape, ways to be more nimble, uh, ways to reduce the regressive effects of regulation that impact the least fortunate among us. I think this crisis has really revealed uh, the ways in which those regulations drive up housing and energy and transportation and food costs uh, for, for those at the bottom of our economic rung. And I think there's a real opportunity uh, to, to explore those things. And, and there's been an interesting conversation, I think, prompted by, by, by COVID-19 that I think it, the answer uh, also answers the, the question of how do we restore America's place as the land of the free? And it's what is the problem and why can't we build stuff in America anymore? Uh, Mark Anderson from, from Silicon Valley uh, wrote in what shouldn't have been a very provocative uh, essay a few weeks back, you know, that question and, and whether it's skyscrapers or, or roads and bridges or wind turbines or vaccines or hospital beds, there's a lot of red tape at all levels of government and a lot of tools for those that wanna keep us from growing and keep us from being economically free that I think uh, at AFP we, we see as uh, uh, one of the highest priorities for uh, a stronger recovery um, and for an opportunity for us to build a more resilient economy. Yeah, thank you, Clint. Uh, Nick, I wanna jump back to you real quick. Um, give us a little more sense um, for you went through the, the the places where we're down, where we're up, but I, I want to focus on and now especially with the uh, the CARES Act that we passed, the trillions of dollars that we're spending here. Can you just put into context for us what what that means for taxpayers, what that means for legislators around the country and states? Um, just just put that in context a little bit more for us. 
Yeah, sure. Well, I think you're seeing uh, really two competing uh, theories here. Uh, the, the first is kind of what Clint mentioned, and that's where are regulatory burdens that may have, uh, shouldn't have ever been there in the first place, gotten in the way of a, an immediate recovery, but also sustaining an economic recovery. And, and so that's been really encouraging to see. Uh, the Americans for Tax Reform put out a, a laundry list of everything that the, the federal government and the states have done to waive regulations to um, save lives and save livelihoods in a lot of senses. Uh, but then there's a, a lot of posturing for uh, the never let a crisis go to waste mantra to how can we uh, secure funds for our own benefit. And you've seen that uh, through uh, the, the CARES package already. Uh, you've seen that through the $3 trillion uh, proposed HEROES package from the, the House Democrats. And a lot of times uh, the failing here is not to keep people tethered to their jobs, uh, but in instead, how can we use the political process to gain well after uh, the pandemic and the immediate crisis is over. Uh, and, and so not only will that add uh, potentially trillions, if not more, uh, to uh, the federal debt, uh, but it will just continue to increase the government's involvement in best left for the private sector. Uh, we, we've seen this in the energy and environment landscape uh, where uh, I work on primarily as a, an issue area focus, where there were talks of extending the wind production tax credit and the solar investment tax credit um, years beyond uh, what they were initially intended for. And, and there's a difference, a very stark difference between um, helping those companies who have been impacted by supply chain uh, disruptions or the demand side effects of the pandemic versus implementing these policies that will last uh, long after the pandemic is over. And, and so I think that's hopefully what this report continues to build off of is, is warning folks of the, the immediate economic costs, both in terms of costs to taxpayers, but also costs to government uh, intervention into the economy like we saw uh, with the Obama stimulus plan uh, where there was a, a lot of money that was doled out for green energy but also how can we fix uh, those regulatory barriers even more so uh, to capitalize on people wanting to get back to work. Uh, you know, when small businesses are having a hard time um, becoming entrepreneurs because of the lending processes at the SEC or, you know, looking at tax reform and, and we saw some progress with the tax, uh, the tax cuts and jobs act, um, but how can we make immediate expensing uh, so businesses can deduct their costs in the year that they were incurred well beyond when it expires in a few years through TCGA. Uh, you know, that, that is a huge, huge part of this process that will encourage new investment and innovation rather than allowing the government to dictate who builds what and how and when. Uh, that, that's really at the, the heart of the discussion right now. And I think as we turn to um, from crisis mode to uh, recovery mode, uh, you know, I'm very wary of this uh, stimulus-style approach that we've seen in the past that both Republicans and Democrats can be susceptible to falling for because they can bring a lot of that money back to their state and back to that district, and, and it really creates this vicious loop of politicians and lobbyists determining who gets the benefit 
And there's a tremendous opportunity cost to all of that because businesses that don't get a chunk of that money uh, are, are left out. Thanks, Nick. Um, I want to invite everybody. If you have a question, I know this is a smart audience. Anybody who's tuning in here um, probably has some questions. So please go to the control panel. You can um, uh, type in a question, um, and we'll uh, we'll get to that coming up. Um, Senator Fan, I wanted to, to to move back to you because I, I'm so fascinated with your experience. You know, kind of living with both feet, um, one in the private, one in the public sector at the same time. So it's, it's kind of a broader question, but I think you'll be able to get the gist of it. What do you see as the biggest impediment from the federal government in helping you do your job as the state Senate president? Great question. Um, I'd like to make a note, something that Nick said about never let a crisis go to waste. We are already working on our special session to get rid of some of that stuff to get us moving back together. So Nick, you're right on point with that one. So as far as the federal government, now uh, my business is a highway construction business. So that's pretty much 98% of my work is federal highway work. And you probably are aware, but those of you who may not be, we have so much government regulation dealing with highway work. Obviously, you know, we, we of course need to be safe with OSHA and, and making sure that we are, are providing a good product, but the environmental uh, requirements have just gotten, gotten out of control here. Uh, the cost to the taxpayers has just risen, the, the per mile cost in construction, just because of all of those regulations. The CFRs, the, um, the uh, work requirements, all of those things that has now taken us thousands and thousands of dollars and tens and millions of dollars that is all government regulation instead of it going into more jobs and into the project. Tell me, tell me more about your biggest challenge from the federal government when it comes to being a business owner. You might have covered just a little bit that, but, but go, go a little deeper on that. Okay. Um, yeah, again, I'm going deeper in the fact that the paperwork, the mounds and mounds of paperwork that we have to do by the way of certified payrolls, by the way of all the HR stuff, uh, you know, when we uh, work on a reservation, we are required to hire a certain number of tribal members, which is great, but these are federal highways, but we are required to do that, which means that now I either have to lay off my own employees or I end up with too many people on the job because I'm required to hire a certain percentage of the tribal members. Um, and when I do, many of them are great workers and I'm thrilled to have them stay on and work with my company and, and go to other job sites. But consequently, they don't have to leave their, their nations. And so my unemployment goes up because they all get to file unemployment on me now. Uh, so there's just all these nuances that keep going with the regulation that is just totally ridiculous. And like I said, the environmental stuff that we have to do now, as far as, you know, just making sure that there is, um, you know, we put up orange fencing now to make sure that the desert turtles don't cross the road during construction. But when there's no construction going on, there's no orange fence, and the desert turtles are still crossing the road. So those are kind of things. Uh, the Kingman, the new Kingman overpass, we've literally had to spend a million and a half dollars 
for a, a special overpass so that some of the animals could get from one side to the other instead of going down to where the other cross was. So just, you know, a lot of government ifs, ands, and whats. No kidding. <laughs> Hey Clint, uh, um, just a, I'm I'm curious from your sense. You know, you guys represent, you know, millions of people, millions of grassroots activist people. Um, it, from your job as a policy person, I'm wondering what has worked in communicating some of the urgency of these problems. Um, do you find that some messaging works better? Do you find that some, you know, messaging you should probably forget about doing? How do we engage? Um, people who are truly interested in being activists. Yeah, Tim, that's a great question. I, I, and I think it, and, and in the issues that I've worked on, which tend to get pretty weedy um, when you're talking about, you know, air quality regulation and um, some of the more uh, detailed and, and, and elaborate and, and often can take up thousands of pages in the Federal Register type of, of rules, it's tough to engage, you know, activist community that I think has instincts in the right directions. Um, I, I think this report does a really good job of it, um, helping get back to the first principles and, and concepts of how can we remove barriers to economic opportunity um, that, that really fit within uh, our, our grassroots engagement model. Um, I think we've uh, found uh, tremendous value, and, and actually I think some of the examples that have been, been cited already are uh, right, right, right within this to, to really illustrate uh, the ways in which red tape and, and, and regulation um, at the state, local, and federal level um, can impact the lives of, of individuals um, and impact people in your community and cause what ultimately are unintended consequences. I think we see for many of these regulations, not only do they have that regressive impact, they also are often supported by uh, some in the business community and the, and the regulated uh, community uh, as a way to, to keep new entrants out. So that, that I think covers things like occupational licensing um, in which uh, you may have additional regulation for a sector um, designed to keep keep other people from, from joining that, that, that uh, profession. Um, and I know Arizona and others have been uh, leading the way on, on those efforts. I think similarly, I think as you look at di across different types of regulation, you see, and, and highway construction is a perfect example of this, but I think- Wait, Clint, Clint uh, let me just interrupt you there. Sorry, I, I just want to make sure we've got this, that everybody everybody in the audience get the, gets this. Occupational licensing, and, and I saw <laughs> Senator Fan shake her head and smile because it's a big, they, they've worked a lot on that. Just Just briefly explain what that means how states can can be a part of that, how the federal government can be a part of that, just what occupational licensing is. Appreciate that. Sure, and, and I wanna give credit because I think there is a, a, uh, a great effort underway with our, our, our folks who are focused on labor and employment issues. Uh, the White House has initiative on this front, and I think there's a number of states that have been uh, proactive identifying occupational licensing. Uh, as a high priority and, and, and ultimately a, a really critical barriers for individuals improving their lot in life. Um, and ultimately these, these requirements um, often emanate from the state level um, and require everyone from a florist to a funeral director to a lawyer to get various uh, certifications, requirements, and, and training, um, and often don't recognize when, when someone moves across state lines uh, the experience and expertise that they've developed perhaps in a different state. Um, and so we've seen a lot of innovation that way, and I think COVID-19 has helped to illustrate this, where uh, really nonsensical requirements uh, that keep voluntary medical professionals who are trying to be first responders in a state where they may not have been licensed in the first instance um, have been, been waved away in a number of states. And so we think, think that that progress should be extended um, and, and questions should be asked. If you want to run a hair braiding company out of your home, uh, do you, should you need a specific uh, business permit uh, that may be restricted? And, and, and if you want to practice forestry uh, or, or floristry rather um, and, uh, and, and grow flowers and sell them, 
and you've developed skills in that way that, that may not have been recognized by the strict board that, that oversees florists in your state. Uh, does that make a lot of sense? Um, does that, that, doesn't that hold back our economy? And so we see tremendous opportunity and, 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 and a, a whole lot of progress and a lot of groups in the center right that have done, I think, a ton to connect the dots on that. And really, I think it's surprising to most people just how much red tape there is to break into a new profession in their community. Yeah, Senator Fan, weigh in on that a little bit. What was some of the work that you, I think it was recently, you just, you passed some occupational licensing reform uh, within the state of Arizona. Have you seen some results from that? Absolutely. Uh, we, and we keep doing more and more every year. Uh, so obviously the things, as was mentioned, the braiding in the home, the florist, uh, blow dry, hair blow dry shops, all of those things, there's no reason for them to have licenses. They're not dealing with chemicals. They're not dealing with anything that would, would remotely require a, a license of any kind. Um, if you're an, an electrician, in New, electrician in New Mexico, then you might as well be an electrician in Arizona. You don't need to have another license here. I am looking forward to the day where we can actually just have one universal electrical license throughout the United States. So they can take that license wherever they end up going, whether it's temporary or permanently. We also, uh, we are doing a lot of things with our military. As you know, we have quite a few military bases here in Arizona and we encourage our military families to stay here and to move here. And they have all gotten out of the service with some really, really great skills, whether it's in construction or, or tech or anything. And so we're recognizing those years of experience they have and waiving those, not only the licensing for it, but the licensing fees for them as well. That's fantastic. Um, we're going to move to um, uh, questions from the audience. Thank you so much for submitting. If you want to submit, if you have something that's, that sparked your interest, please feel free. Um, it's, it, you can see how to do that um, in, the, uh, in the chat box there. Um, we're going to go to Stu Reuter. Uh, he's a tax preparer um, in D.C. And he asked the question that um, Senator Cruz and Senator Lee addressed at a similar um, webinar to this earlier this week. <laughs> And I'm going to toss it up there. Nick, maybe maybe Clint, you could do this. And also, Senator Fan, uh, whoever jumps in first gets the first answer. Um, how are we going to keep all the regs that have been waived recently for, from COVID from being reimposed? Now, that, I think that's a great question. So that's a, that's a free one. I'll jump in. Make sure Republicans get reelected, please. <laughs> and I just, I'd, I'd add, I think there's a... Uh, uh, it's a great question, and, and while I've spent most of my life trying to avoid people who do taxes in D.C., um, I, I think there's several ideas out there. So last week, uh, President Trump issued an executive order on uh, regulatory relief and, and economic recovery uh, that among, I think, the three major provisions uh, asked federal agencies to, to find ways to permanently rescind those regulations that may have been demonstrated to, to, to not make sense in a crisis and probably don't, don't make sense when this is all over. Um, we've also seen legislation introduced um, by folks like Representative Andy Biggs from Arizona and Chip Roy from Texas uh, to, to require uh, that those, those rules and regulations that have been suspended during this pandemic uh, are done so permanently unless Congress passes a law to reinstate them. Uh, we, we are encouraging states to, to follow a similar direction uh, as that executive order uh, that includes not only uh, the permanent suspension of those regulations, but leaving no stone unturned. We think there's a number of provisions at the state and federal level that haven't been fully tapped. Uh, for example, many of the barriers to highway construction that, that Senator Fan had mentioned are, are under various uh, statutes and, and, and implementing regulations that have provisions that allow for, the, for waiving 
the National Environmental Protection Act, or excuse me, Policy Act's reviews or uh, certain requirements of uh, Davis-Bacon uh, for prevailing wage requirements for highway construction projects uh, or the National Historic Preservation Act requirements for historic preservation reviews. Uh, and we think those federal agencies and state agencies should, should go further um, in identifying that red tape that may continue to keep us not only from responding to COVID, uh, but also recovering strong, more, more strongly. Um, so we think there's a lot in that executive order worth uh, taking a close look at. Nick, anything? Yeah, I'll just quickly add that, you know, my hope is that the, the tangible experiences that people have seen with the obstacles these regulations have presented have actually questioned the need for the regulations. I think generally people may think that regulations are good. They uh, protect public health, they protect safety, uh, and certainly some regulations are necessary. But this reminds me kind of the, the debate when Uber and Lyft were first happening and really taking off the ground. And you saw all of these cities uh, and, and areas kind of cater to the, the taxi um, lobbies and uh, prohibit Uber from operating in their states or prohibiting Lyft from operating in their cities. And people are saying, why? Uh, this is competition. This has been good for me. I'm hoping the same will be, happy, will be happening with a lot of these re regulatory reforms. Uh, the National Environmental Policy Act that, that Clint mentioned is a, a great example. Uh, you know, if you look back during the Obama administration and their stimulus bill, you know, that, you know, I think one of the quotes from President Obama at the time was, you know, these shovel-ready jobs weren't as shovel-ready as we anticipated because of something like NEPA. And you have to wonder if something, you know, for over uh, 100,000 different projects going on across the country, if NEPA is being waived 90% of the time, uh, why do we have that process in the first place? And again, this is something that not just affects our our public roads and the highways, but uh, things like solar and renewable projects as well. It was um, it was the wind industry and the solar industry who were really uh, behind this administration when it came to implementing some sort of NEPA reform. My only fear is that with all of the people who have given themselves haircuts during the pandemic, it's going to set occupational licensing back 10 years. <laughs> That's a good thought, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have another question uh, from our audience. And Nick, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Um, how, uh, this is from James Plant. Um, how can we control federal COVID-19 state funding uh, from being misused at a state level um, to pay down debt not associated with COVID-19, i.e. municipal retirement obligations, pensions. We all know the, the quote-unquote bailout scenario. Um, so again, I'm going to, I mean, maybe, uh, Senator Fan, you have an idea on this, uh, but I'll, I'll throw it out uh, to anybody as well. Okay, I'll start in with this one. Obviously, the monies that came directly from the federal government to the states, we have some say over that. There are some regulations about what we can and can't do. Um, it is a little open-ended in the sense that uh, the way it's outlined, because of everything we do on a municipality or, or a state level, it's a matter is do you pay it and backfill it or do you do it directly? Um, it's a great question and I think it's going to be up to um, fiscally responsible governors and legislative bodies to be able to keep a handle on that and make sure that we use those monies wisely. And Tim, I just add, if you don't mind, I think, uh, you know, American for Prosperity strongly believes that we should reject those bailouts of state and local governments that, that have 
uh, recklessly spent and and created a, a giant hole. And I say this as a, a former uh, pensioner in, in Kentucky, who uh, uh, is one of the states that is is in the biggest hole. And I also will say, I think some of the reactions to COVID-19, if, if you really want to see a, a parade of horrible ideas, uh, Nancy Pelosi's most recent legislation responds to, to what I think are legitimate concerns about the underlying drivers of things like housing unaffordability uh, with a magnitude of money and red tape that is ridiculous. Uh, so we know that, that several million people are evicted from our homes each year. Um, and that there are problems. We actually have been uh, fairly surprised, and we think it's a, a signal of just how uh, much the housing market, uh, whether it be between landlords and tenants or, or homeowners and lenders, is built on on relationships of mutual benefit that not that many people fewer paid their rent in May of 2020 compared to May of 2019, and actually purchase rate lock activity is higher. Uh, in spite of that, and in spite of uh, what, what we think is a consensus that the underlying driver of housing unaffordability is closed access cities like San Francisco and Seattle that enact prohibitive uh, policies and land use and zoning barriers that keep us from building the housing supply to put people in affordable and diverse housing. Instead, uh, Nancy Pelosi's recommendation is over $200 billion in housing assistance. So just to put that in perspective, in 2019, only $500 billion was spent in all of rent uh, in the entire United States uh, for housing assistance that is untargeted and similarly, uh, nationwide moratoria on evictions and, morator and, and foreclosures, um, as well as policies to prevent any negative consumer credit reporting. We think all of those actions move in the wrong direction instead of pursuing the economic freedoms that are recommended, I think, in this report uh, to respond what is an underlying housing crisis. Um, more red tape and more spending is not the answer. And it's funny, you should say that, Clint, um, um, a very, very free uh, rated country in um, the Index of Economic Freedom, New Zealand, they have seen firsthand what a uh, federal government, what they would be the big, big government there, um, trying to fix a housing problem in Auckland. It's completely failed and it's only resulted in less housing, less freedom, less opportunity. So that is not the way. It's, it's clear as an example, clear as a bell there in, uh, in, in New Zealand. So uh, maybe we should send that uh, example to uh, Speaker Pelosi as well. Um, Nick, I, I had a question here, um, and this is from the boss, Andy Olivaster, so I have to ask it or else I'm probably, uh, I'll probably be in the doghouse, Andy. Um, he said, there's 11 chapters in, the, in your report, and we consider that a blueprint. We really do. Um, what's one or two um, of the areas in or the chapters that don't get as much attention? I know we talked about the debt and spending and things like that, but but what are some of the ones that we wouldn't necessarily expect or hear from? Yeah, I'll give you two. You know, the, the first is trade freedom. Uh, th this is something that, that hasn't been discussed all too much uh, today, but has obviously been a, a big topic of conversation with this administration. And again, something where tariff payments have been waived. You're asking if they've been waived during a time of crisis, why do we have these tariffs in the first place? And some of the knee-jerk responses to uh, the, the oil crisis and, and the, the plummeting of oil prices was to implement a tariff on imported oil, which have been, would have been disastrous to uh, US refineries. Um, you know, if you look at the open markets in oil extraction and refining processes, it's not just benefited the shale producers and, and the domestic producers in the United States, but also the refineries who in the Gulf Coast are better equipped to refine the heavier sour crudes coming from places like Canada uh, or the Middle East or places like Mexico. So implementing tariffs or any type of Buy American provisions uh, would have been 
troubling for the refining industry, but most importantly for consumers through higher prices. And it wouldn't have really moved the needle in terms of boosting oil prices to a sustainable level for a lot of producers. So trade freedom is very important, especially I think in this time where economic freedom has come under attack from both the left and the right in some senses, and this promotion of economic nationalism ha has gained attention. That was part of the other genesis for this report is to say that you know we're not interested in economic freedom just for freedom's sake or just for getting a better score on the report card. Yes, freedom is vitally important, uh, but it's also just to promote um, higher levels of prosperity and better lives for all Americans. So trade freedom is important. And then investment freedom is something that probably doesn't get a ton of attention unless you uh, are a business or an investor, uh, but it is critical to driving innovation and investment in the United States. And we have a lot of antiquated, unnecessary laws in place that prohibit uh, foreign investment, for instance. Um, if you look at something uh, esoteric like the Foreign Dredge Act, uh, which has been in law for more than a century now, it prohibits dredging uh, in the United States at U.S. ports. It, it prohibits foreign companies from bidding on those projects. And, and what that results in is uh, much higher expenses uh, because most of the, the best dredgers in the world um, come from the Netherlands, come from Belgium, who can do these types of activities um, twice as fast and at a fraction of the cost. And, and that would just open up more economic opportunity at the US ports who now are forced to light load their cargo uh, because the ports aren't deep enough. And so they have to offload it in Canada and then bring it down to the United States. Or there's a lot of congestion at the ports where they can only let a certain amount of ships in at a certain amount of time. And so ships are effectively just waiting to get into the port entry for a week or two at a time. And that, that just slows all sorts of economic activity, not just for products coming into the United States, but also for products being exported out of the United States to consumers. It, it's our farmers who are really impacted by things like this. So to trade freedom and investment freedom, I think are, are two areas where we can continue to grow. We can obviously continue to improve our score, but it, it will really help kind of jumpstart and sustain an economic recovery. Senator Fan, um, and, and just, just wrapping us up, go ahead and just give us kind of key takeaways that you want folks to have from Arizona. What, what can you impart on us as we um, wrap this up? Well, uh, we are in a battle here. Uh, we are a right to work state. We want to keep it that way. We know that uh, the outside forces are trying to push very hard this year in our elections to turn us not only into a blue state, but a union state. So we are pushing back very, very hard on that because that's one of our main, main uh, reasons for success here is we are a right to work state. We also make sure that we're fiscally responsible. We, uh, when we talk about that, the rest of that COVID money, um, not only as an executive board member on ALEC, but as well as the Senate president, we said no to that, that $3 trillion. Uh, we don't need to put our country in debt anymore. We, we saved our money. We have over a billion dollars in our rainy day fund. Uh, we put aside another 700 million just to take care of this COVID stuff out of our own pocket. Um, so 
that's what states need to do. We need to be more responsible and, um, you know, that just the debt, the union and public safety debt, we have got to take care of that because that is just getting us deeper and deeper in a hole and for, we have got to figure out how to fix that nationwide. Yeah, thank you so much, Senator Fan. really appreciate it. Clint, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and, and wrap us up with your final thoughts too. Great. Well, well, thanks again for for having me. And I think this has been a really really helpful conversation. I I, I think you know, in, in thinking about the inflection point that we're at with COVID nineteen and and with the response, and I think a lot of the um, you know reactions that that that, that folks who are uh, rightfully in favor of economic freedom have had. I think our organization, I think many had had an initial reaction of of let's do no harm. Uh, let's keep the you know state and federal governments from not doing anything worse. Um, and and you know let's be timely and targeted and temporary was was kind of our motto. And I think there's a, a number of, of reasons, uh, and I think this report really helps uh, to transition that conversation. It is not Rahm Emanuel style crisis opportunism to say, we need to have a principled, stronger economic recovery. And part of that is taking a very close look up and down all levels of government and, and how can we remove barriers to economic opportunity um, and, and, and how can we uh, do things smarter um, and allow us to build again in America. And I think this, this report really helps to uh, lead us in that direction and, and, and hopefully in a way that uh, not only avoids those bad deals um, that we you know keep getting pitched, um, but also uh, leads us to, to seriously look at things what, from, from energy and environmental regulation to labor requirements, to occupational licensing, uh, to highway construction requirements, to the many, many categories of red tape that we see um, you know, across our economic system and, and hopefully to, to raise us all up to, to be stronger in the future. Yeah, thank you so much, Clint, for being a part of this and take care of my adopted home state of Ohio, okay? <laughs> hey, um, Nick, I have to. I want to end with, with with you with this. You quote Milton Friedman in the paper, and you say the quote says, "quote The market gives people what the people want instead of what other people think they ought to want." At the bottom of many criticisms of the market economy is really lack of belief in freedom itself. End quote. And you talk about the connection between economic freedom and societal improvement being unmistakable. As you as you wrap up, just talk a little bit more about that because it, it was so inspiring on the podcast. I, I want to let our um, our audience hear that as well. Yeah, well, thanks, Tim, and, and, and again, thanks, Clint and, and Senator Fan. I mean, two people who have dedicated their their work um, to improving uh, people's lives um, at, at different levels of government, and, and so. Um, we all owe a debt of gratitude to, to, to the two of them, not just for being here today, uh, but for their work. Uh, I pulled that quote because um, if you look at the link between economic freedom and uh, human flourishing, it really is unmistakable. Uh, you know, that linkage is very strong in terms of allowing people the opportunities to pursue their dreams, to produce the goods and services that people want and demand, uh, to reducing levels of poverty, of unemployment, uh, to improving the environment. There's a strong linkage between economic freedom and uh, environmental prosperity. So all of the things that we desire collectively as a society, uh, but also on an individual basis, uh, economic freedom gives us that. And, and the, the other quote that I really like, but I use too often um, comes from uh, Friedrich Hayek, is that the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to man how little they know about what they imagine they can design. Uh, and a lot of times policymakers think they can design what the economy should look like, but end up failing miserably. And, and when you empower 
the human's uh, ability to do that, uh, you just see so much success in terms of innovation and bright new ideas, uh, but also just raising levels of prosperity so people have the opportunity to do more uh, and, and be a better society. Well, thank you so thank you so much, Nick. And as uh, as our panelists um, exit stage left, wherever that is, um, we're going to kick it back to Andy Olivastro. Thank you, Tim, very much. Thank you, everyone, for this wonderful conversation. The theme that resonated throughout freedom and flourishing. And I would say I challenge our audience. Senator Fan is an is an inspiration. I challenge our audience. Who's the next honorable Karen Fan? Who's who's a leader in the legislature? who also started a flourishing business with $500 out of their own home. It's truly remarkable what you can do in, in America. Uh, thank you, Senator Fan. Thank you, Clint Woods, for your comments and for the work you do. Thank you to Nick and Tim for helping lead this conversation and helping us at Heritage shape this conversation nationally. I thank everyone for joining us for all the questions. It's hard to get to all of them. Uh, feel free to email Tim or myself. I'm at andrew.olivastro at heritage.org. We appreciate the ongoing feedback that we receive from all of you. And please visit resourcebank.org and heritage.org for these recordings and for upcoming programs. And now let's all go do our part and restore America as the land of the free.